0: That's the first time I've ever had a bumper video, so that was a little. Be, bear with me. Um, so over the next three weeks, we're going to take a journey around um, this program, this um, yeah tool to use um, on how best we can share our faith with one another or with others. Um, I don't know about you, but for many believers, uh, sharing our faith can be difficult, right? It can be overwhelming, Questions arise in our minds like, what if I say something wrong? Or what if they have a question that I don't know the answer to? What if they think I'm weird or crazy, right? (laughs) What, What if they don't like me after I share this good news with them? What if fill in the blank? What if, what if, what if? And these are all real questions that we need to ask ourselves. These are real concerns. However, they shouldn't really distract us from what we are called to do. And what we are called to do is to make disciples of all nations. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. He says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice here what Jesus isn't concerned with. He's not concerned with the questions that that we ask. He's not concerned with you knowing all the answers to the questions that will be asked. He's not concerned with how people perceive his disciples. His primary concern is about the message being spread. The message is the most important. Also see here that Jesus isn't concerned with converts. He doesn't say go and convert people. He says go and make disciples. There is a distinct difference between converts and disciples. We'll talk about that a little more in, in week three, but here I want us to know that we aren't just to tell people the good news and just move on from there. We are to teach them, to train them, to equip them, to live a life of following after Jesus. And unfortunately, there are many churches who lack this aspect of the Great Commission. They're more interested in baptisms and prayers of salvation, but they don't want to do the nitty-gritty work of discipleship. So discipleship part is key when it comes to the path that I envision our church traveling down. If you've been around me for any amount of time, you know that I desire One of my greatest desires is to help us think biblically about the world around us. How we can know rightly what the word of God says. How I want us to engage holistically in this life that God has given us. That he has given us a mind, body, and soul, and he has redeemed each one if we are in him. God tells us to love him with all of our being, being, and we should heed that instruction. And that's where discipleship comes into play. Now here's where the problem lies, though. There are too many people in our community and in our country that call themselves Christians simply because they believe it's the right thing to do. They don't, they don't want to go to hell. So they want to be Christians, but not wanting to go to hell does not make you a Christian. Trusting Jesus for your salvation makes you a Christian. Knowing and believing the gospel makes you a Christian being transformed by the Holy spirit and the word of God makes you a Christian and doing that leads to following Jesus and submitting your life to his lordship. That's what makes you a Christian. But many in our community and in our country like the idea of Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord. What many of our friends, neighbors, and family members need to hear is the whole message of the gospel. They need to see Jesus for who he is. The Lord of all creation. The one who that calls us to follow after him. And in the process, we will die to our own desires, our own wills, and to our own flesh to follow after him. People need to know what the scriptures actually teach and not necessarily what they want to believe. Here's what I mean. I saw a study this week from Pew Research. Uh, PewResearch.org, you can look it up yourself. This was from 2018, and here's what it said. That nearly nine out of ten Americans... American adults specifically that were surveyed believe in a higher power. And that sounds pretty good. However, out of that 88%, it was actually 88%, but I'll just round it up. Adult, the adults of the adults that were surveyed, only 56% of them believed in the God in God, as he is described in the Bible, meaning that one third of those who claim to be, who believe in a higher power, don't believe in the truth of scripture about the way that God has revealed himself to us through his word and most clearly through Jesus Christ. So many people believe in a God, but which God do they believe in? If you ask people if you believe in God, many of them will say yes. But what God do they believe in? This means that nearly half of the adults in the American population are going to perish because they don't believe the gospel message. And maybe they haven't even heard the gospel message. You know how many people that is? One third? About 110 million people in our nation that don't believe the word of God, who don't understand the message of the gospel or who have completely rejected it. That doesn't, that number doesn't include those who are simply culturally Christian that aren't actually committed to following after Jesus, but simply say that they are a Christian because they believe it's the right thing to do or because their parents were Christian or for whatever reason. That's a lot of people, 110 million, but let's shrink it down to scale just a little bit. Okay, according to the census data of 2020, in our zip code 77455, there are a total of 1751 people living here. Out of those 700, 1751 people living, there are 1128 adults between the age of 20 and 85. So if we take that number and we port it over, obviously statistics, you know, but if we take that one third of adults from the Pew Research survey and apply it to those living in our area, then that would mean that about 372 people don't believe in the God of the Bible in our zip code. 372 people don't understand the gospel message. 372 people aren't going to spend eternity with God when they die. Rather, they are going to hell to be separated from him forever. 372 people are living in rebellion against a holy and just God. And more than likely, out of those 372 people, their kids and their grandkids probably don't believe either. So the number 372 is actually greater than that. It's easy to look at a number like 372 or 110 and feel nothing because numbers are impersonal. But remember, each one of those numbers has a name. And each one of those names has a face. And each one of those Names and faces is a living, breathing person made in the image of God. That means that those numbers are your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers. Now that should shock you. And I can continue with numbers all day long like that this morning. If we wanted to zoom out to El Campo, if we wanted to keep zooming out to Wharton County, we could continue to go through those numbers. But just know that one out of every... or yeah. Three out of every ten people that you meet probably don't understand the gospel message. That's a lot. Many people like to claim that America is a Christian nation. However, when almost half of our adults aren't believers, how can we make that claim? Or when one-third of our adults aren't believers, how can we make that claim? The truth is there are many countries that are sending missionaries to America, our soil, because they realize and recognize a problem that we don't. They realize that we are an unreached people group. That Americans don't know the gospel. Now that number is soon going to be higher. The number of unbelievers versus believers. Family, we have a mission field all around us. We don't have to go to a foreign country. We can step right outside our door. And there are people right there. Our country, our county, and our city is a field that needs to be harvested people need to hear the good news of the gospel and that we need to take a hold of and tell our friends and our neighbors and our family about the good news of Jesus. Now, one of the things that I've heard, and you've probably heard this complaint too, about the state of our nation, people complaining about how our nation is going to hell in a handbasket, right? I'm sure you've heard that. You've said that maybe, and there are many perceived reasons for that. One of the most common ones I hear is, Sorry, Garth, is that they started, it started when it all took prayer out of school. They say, this problem started when we took prayer out of school. Let's think about this. People are saying that essentially if we put prayer back in school, then the problems would be fixed with our country. And I understand their sentiment, and I understand their frustration, but can we just take a step back and be honest with ourselves for just a minute? Putting prayer back in school isn't going to make a difference if the church The body of Christ isn't out in the neighborhood and in the community and in the world proclaiming the gospel message and making disciples. Forcing a kid to listen to a prayer isn't going to change his heart. For far too long, the American church has rested on its laurels, looking at the past for confirmation that we were doing good and right things. And for a long time, the church was doing good and right things. And we saw Flourish, churches flourish. We saw big buildings. We saw record Sunday school attendance. Everyone and their mama came to church. And that's what we long for. We're looking back in the rearview mirror, hoping that one day we get there. And that's not necessarily a bad desire to have. But it's also not the reality that we live in. People don't generally just show up to church. Sometimes it happens, but it doesn't generally happen. So we need to change our strategy. We can't just sit here and wait for people to walk in the door. We need to do what Jesus says, and we need to go and make disciples. Now, the tra- translation of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 of go isn't really the best translation. It's In Greek, it's a participle. Now, if you missed English class, uh, a participle is a word that is formed into a verb, but used as an ad- adjective. It's basically adding ing to the end of it, okay? So Jesus says in the Matthew chapter 28, he says this, he said, he doesn't say simply go. He says, as you are going, make disciples. As you are living your life, make disciples. He's not necessarily telling them to go into foreign lands. He's not necessarily telling us to, to move halfway across the country. He's telling us that as we live our lives, as we interact with people on a daily basis, we should be making disciples, whether that be at home, in the store, at a nail salon, at work, Wherever it may be, wherever we go, making disciples should be an intricate part of our lives. It should be as natural to us as brushing our teeth, taking a shower, eating a meal. That's what making disciples should look like. So what does this have to do with First Baptist Louise? We're here with us last week. I spoke about this for a few minutes. The makeup of this church has grown and changed over the last two and a half years that I've been here. Uh, since God has called me to serve here, and it's not because of me. Believe me, I know. Uh, God's doing an amazing work here. Here's the thing. The growth has been amazing. I love seeing and getting to know new people. However, most of our growth has been through what we would call transfer growth, meaning that someone starts attending our services from another church. Whether they moved or they got married or they were seeking out something different, they came here and decided to stay. And praise the Lord for that. I love that you're here. I'm grateful for the friendships and the new relationships that have come from the new people within our church. But as a church, we need, we need to do something more. We don't want to be a church that is simply just shuffling sheep around with other churches. We need to become a church body that emphasizes organic and evangelistic growth. Now, I want you to hear my heart. This isn't about packing our church full. That's not the goal. Butts in the seats is not the goal. The goal is that people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The goal is that sinners will be washed clean. The goal is that Jesus will be exalted, that he will be magnified. And if as a byproduct of our gospel centered conversations with people, that they start coming to our church, praise the Lord. They can worship with us and they can serve with us. And that's all the better. But remember, the goal isn't to fill the church. The goal is to make heaven crowded. So I've laid out the problem. And some of you may be thinking, well, Josh, isn't that what we pay you for? Isn't that why you were hired? Maybe you're not even being that bold. Maybe you're not being that bold. Maybe you're saying, that's for someone else to do. I'm too busy. I don't know enough. I'm scared that I'm going to say something wrong. So I'll let somebody else take care of it. To answer some of those objections, I want to first tell you that as followers of Jesus, it is every one of our jobs to tell others about Jesus. If you left it solely up to me, or for the other people to do, let me tell you, nothing would ever get done. We've already said that there are about 372 people in our zip code that don't know or believe. How long would it take me alone to talk to 372 people to build relationships with 372 people versus how long would it take us you to talk to one or two people there are power in numbers so maybe your concern is okay yeah I see that Josh that's a good idea maybe I should start talking to people but you don't feel like you know enough maybe you think you don't know enough okay I want to point you to Acts chapter 4 verse 13 and this is Paul, or no, I'm sorry, Peter and John, okay? And this is what they say about Peter and John in chap- in Acts chapter four, verse 13. He says that when they, that's the Jews, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. How do they describe Peter and John? Uneducated, untrained, and they were amazed by what they were saying. But why? Because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. You don't have to be a seminary graduate. You don't have to know all the answers to the questions what you need to do. What is imperative though is that you be with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus. You learn to love him. You learn to listen to him. You learn to follow after him. You get discipled by other people. In whatever stage of life you find yourself in, God has uniquely gifted you to do what you need to do to share the gospel. He's equipped you to share the gospel at home, at work, in the grocery store. It doesn't matter. Now here's another thing we need to remember. God doesn't rely on our elegance or eloquence in speaking when you share his word. What he uses is your faithfulness. God is the one in charge of salvation. You are simply called to proclaim. Teach. And I'm going to burst your bubble. There will be people who reject you. There will be people who hear you. Hear what you have to say. And they walk away without responding. They walk away thinking you're crazy. You're one of those Jesus freaks. And there will be those who... That you simply planted a seed in. There will be times when you share the gospel. That you will reap the harvest of the seeds that were planted. But you aren't in control. You can only do what you have been called to do. Which is tell people about the one who saved you. And tell others about how good and great he is. Here's what I want you to do for just a moment. When you came in on each one of your chairs. There was a little Prayer focus card given to you. It says, Life on Mission, and then it's got some lines under it. On those lines, you don't have to do it right now, but I want you to do this soon. I want you to think about the people who you know who haven't heard the gospel. That can be someone you know who is outright not a Christian, who has rejected the faith, or this could be someone you know who proclaims to be a Christian but doesn't live a life compatible with Jesus' teaching. And what I want you to do is on that card, I want you to put down one to three names of people that you know. And when you write their names down, I want you to know that you are now committing to praying for them. You don't have to share the gospel with them yet, but you do need to pray with them or pray for them. Commit to praying for them every day. If you need to stick that on your refrigerator, on your mirror at home as you're getting ready in the morning, whatever it takes, remember those are the men and women that I need to pray for who don't know who Jesus is. Make sure that the prayer card is somewhere visible, that you will see it and that you will remember it. And as you think about these people that you want to pray for, those are the people that you are eventually going to share the gospel with. I want you to also prepare your heart and prepare your mind for the conversations that you're going to have. Pray that God gives you the words to speak. Pray that God gives you the knowledge that you need to know. Now, I don't want you just to limit your prayers to those who are on that card. We need to pray for all the lost, but I want you to focus on those one to three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know how many, ever many names you want to put on there. And over the next nine weeks, we're going to learn about this uh, the simple gospel presentation tool that will help us feel equipped to talk to, to others about Jesus. The tool is called Three Circles, as you can see on the screens. There will be three sermons over the next three weeks. They're going to go over different circles. Beginning August 6th in the evening, we're going to do a six-week Sunday evening evangelism training that will get you ready for and equipped with sharing this tool with others. This tool can be used anywhere. People have used it on napkins at restaurants. They've used it on paper. They have, there's even an app on your phone. If you go to our website, I've got a link. I've made it as easy as possible for you to download that tool if you want to. If you go to fbclouise.com, and there's a little tab there. You click on three circles. It'll take you to either the Play Store if you've got an iPhone or a Google uh, Android or the Apple store, whatever it's called. If that, if you want to do that, so it's there for you. I want you to get comfortable with using this tool. So I, I encourage you starting August 6th to come to the Sunday evening trainings. Um, it'll be a good time to get equipped and, and learn with all that being said all that long. I'm done with my introduction. 21 minutes in. Okay. Um, but the rest of it's not as long. Okay. I want you to think about furniture for just a minute. That's a weird transition, right? Furniture. Stay with me. Have you ever bought an unassembled piece of furniture? Like from Walmart or Target, Amazon, or Ikea? I'm sure most of you have, okay? What's the worst part about buying new furniture? Putting it together, right? Putting it together is the worst part. Now, thankfully, the manufacturers do include instructions on how to put that thing together. They know that when you pull out all the pieces out of the box, you may feel overwhelmed or with the prospect of putting it together, you may not even know where to start, which screws, joints, nails go into which holes. Why would that be overwhelming? Well, because you're not the one who designed it. Right? You're not the one who designed it. Now you have a choice. When you open the box and you pull everything out, you can start assembling without looking at the instructions, or you can start with the instructions. I see Chuck go, yeah, I usually don't do the instructions. But by discarding the instructions, you are probably going to miss a step. Right? You're going to put something on backwards. You're going to end up with extra parts or with pieces out of order. So what you have to do is you have to stop and look at the instructions. I know this because I've done this. Corey's been in the room when I've done this. The furniture had a designer. And through his design, you were able to get the bookcase, the side table, the playground, whatever it is you ordered. However, outside of his design and outside of his instructions, you are never sure what you're going to get. This is a, a silly but practical illustration that points us to the reality. God has designed our lives to be lived in a specific way. So the first circle in this tool, you're going to see it on the screen so you don't have to quit, is God's design. Okay? That's the first circle in the tool, God's design. Now we see God's design from the very opening words of Scripture, Right? Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I've told you before that this is perhaps the most important verse in all of Scripture. Because if this verse is true, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then we can believe everything that follows. And if this verse is false, then we can ignore everything that follows. And we believe... I believe and you should believe that that verse is true that God created the heavens and the earth and in creating the heavens and the earth, he had specific design and purpose. He is the sole architect of everything that had ever been created. He is the one on which the whole creation was created and planned and designed. Now we're not going to read through all of Genesis chapter one, one through 25, but we are going to see that he did create everything. Light, atmosphere, dry ground, plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the sea creatures, land animals, and ultimately, humanity. The beauty in this poem is that if you take all the days and you put them in two columns, and you can do this later. If you put one, day one through three on, on the left, and you put days four through six on the right, you see the grand design of God. You see God make a form, and then on days, four, on days one through three, and then on days four through six, you see him have a function where he populates what he had created. It's a beautiful picture about God's design. I talked about this back in October of 2021. If you want to go back and check it out on Facebook or on the podcast. Needless to say, all of God's creation had a purpose, a design, and a function. There was not one wasted atom, not any wasted energy. Nothing was out of place. God's creation was designed exactly how he wanted it to be designed. It functioned exactly as he intended it to function. Beauty, function, and purpose were baked into God's design of the universe. From the plants to the animals, from the planets to the stars, from the cells to the atoms, everything is imbued with God's design. We can see the fingerprints of God on everything that he has created. And in this retelling of the story of creation that we get in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, I believe the most beautiful verses are found in 127 and in 131. And in 127, he says this So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And then in verse 31, he says this God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening and morning came, the sixth day. God's creation was good, very good. Very good indeed. And the pinnacle of his creation, the capstone of his creation, was humanity. And there's a lot of arguments and discussions over what it means to be made in God's image, and we aren't going to take a whole lot of time to go over that. But what we need to know is that when God created us, he created us for his purposes. We were created to be representatives of his, to dwell with the rest of his creation. And when he created us, when he designed us, he designed us to live and to operate in a certain way. Instructions on how we should live are given to us. And he didn't leave any aspect out. The first thing I want us to see is that God created us with our specific gender identity. In verse 127, he says, he created them male and female in God's design of his creation. There isn't any confusion on who we are. We are one or we are the other. That's why it's so detrimental about the transgender movement. They are fundamentally denying God's design. But we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. God's design is beautiful and life-giving. Not only did God design our gender identity though he also designed families in 128 it says god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply one man and one woman were designed to come together in marriage to do what multiply to make babies to be fruitful and to multiply and that was the design That is God's great creation, that we would continue to produce offspring. Now, obviously, I know not everybody's able to do that, but God's intention was that we would. And there's a more beautiful picture of this multiplication in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Think about that. This Jesus said, go into all nations, make disciples. Making disciples is our call as Christians to be fruitful and multiply. We multiply the family of God by making disciples. So there is a direct parallel between what God told us to do in making a family to multiply and be fruitful and what Jesus commissioned us with with his message to multiply and be fruitful. Marriage and families are an essential part of God's design for creation. So it's no, it's no wonder why the New Testament authors call us the body of Christ and the family of God. We are intricately tied together. We aren't something that to be cast off or to be put on the back burner. There's a fundamental way of living life and that is with a family. To go on a tangent, this is the reason why God hates divorce because it fundamentally tears to shred something that God designs to be good. God's design means that we have a deep and meaningful relationship with one another and with a family. God designed us also to work this one is something that people don't like to hear. Many people, even Christians, lament the fall of Adam and Eve because it, they think it's because of that that we have to work. But if we see here in Genesis 128, he says this, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on it. You know what that subdue means? Work it. Go to work. Get to work rule it that means there's something unruly that we have to subdue work is created in the the design of humanity god created adam as a gardener and he gave him a garden to work in god designed us as humanity to work to have dominion over the earth to subdue it we can't do that passively we must subdue actively Right? Subduing takes active work. We are designed to work. How many of us would be better a better light in our workplace? A better light for the gospel in our workplace if we realize that God designed us to be there. Whether you're working out in the field, whether you're working in a grocery store, whether you're working at a gas station, whether you're working in the home, whatever it is, it is good for us to work. It is right for us to work. Working is part of what makes us in the image of God. We need to see work that it isn't a curse, but it's a blessing. It is a good thing. Sure. We work harder now that there's thorns and thistles in our work, that there's blood, sweat and tears that are put into our work now because of the fall. But working was always integrated into the design of humanity. I think I've told you this before. I believe there's still going to be work to be done when we're with God for all eternity, but we can talk about that a different time. Something that goes hand in hand with work is God's design for his creation to also rest. We were created to take time away from the hustle and the bustle of life and refocus on God and our family. In fact, God modeled this for us in the next in chapter two verses one through three, when he says, so in the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work. See here that God didn't have to rest, but he wanted to show us that rest is a good and godly thing. In fact, if we don't live according to this design, then we are living outside of his design, and we're getting burnt out and we're not wanting to work. We need to rest. So every aspect of our lives, from our gender identity to our resting from work, has been designed by the architect of creation. And his design is good. But I can, can I tell you the most amazing part of his creation, of his design, is that he designed us for relationship with him. He designed us to be in communion with himself. We were designed to have unbroken, unfettered communion with the God of creation. With the Lord of all creation, we were designed to be with him. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, after the fall, we see that God was walking in the garden. This was something that wasn't an unusual experience for both Adam and Eve to experience. They expected God to walk in the garden. That's why they hid from him. God would walk with them in the cool of the evening. God walked and talked with his creation. That is how we are designed to live. And God ultimately walked and talked with his creation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he came to dwell with us. When God tabernacled amongst us. Putting on flesh. Humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, we see our God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. We are designed to have fellowship and relationship with our Creator. However, this isn't how it is, always. You see, God has a design for every area of our lives, our families, marriages, money, sex work or sex life, not sex work, sex life, work life, and just plain life. God designed us to be in a relationship with him. But we have all departed from that design. And that is called sin. Sin is when we depart from God's design. We were born with a sinful nature. so sin comes so naturally to us. There is no one who gets it right all of the time. We all sin and fall short of God's perfect design. And this sin... This brokenness, this abandonment of God's design leads to what we call, or what this is called, brokenness. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's two ends Anyway, brokenness. And this means that this is easy for us to understand, right? Most of us understand brokenness. It feels like broken relationships. It feels like addiction, depression, discouragement, guilt, shame. We all want out of our brokenness. So what do we try to do? We try to fix it ourselves. We try to chase after things that will fill this hole of God's design. We medicate it, or we numb ourselves with drugs or alcohol. We strive to be better people, hoping that somehow, in some way, our good will outweigh our bad. We look for ways to alleviate our pain. And when we do that, when we go off on these lines of brokenness, trying to fix it ourselves, what do we end up doing? We end up being more broken. We end up finding that... Nothing satisfies, nothing fulfills, nothing will make that better. And this feels like a bad thing. What do you mean nothing's going to make this better? What do you mean that there is no hope if I'm chasing after these things? What that should do? The way that brokenness is a good thing is that it's a way for God to get our attention. When we feel broken inside, everything is all messed up. We know that something needs to change. We know that something needs to be different, that all of what I'm doing doesn't work. What we need to do is we need to repent. We need to change direction. That's what the word repent means. We repent. We repent of our sins. We change our minds. We realize that our brokenness Whatever we're chasing after, money, sex, fame, fortune, whatever it is, will never complete us and leads us to a place of even more brokenness. But when we hear the gospel, when we believe the gospel, we repent and believe, we hear the gospel, we are transformed. This is what we need. Nothing here, whatever you find, that you think is going to satisfy you, is, is going to end up leaving you broken. More broken. Searching for more. Wanting more. But we can repent and believe the gospel message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to dwell amongst us, to live amongst us, that he died the death that we deserve, that he rose again to give us a life that we need to be restored. God's design for us is that we would see how broken we are and that we would repent and believe the gospel and that through repenting and believing the gospel, we would recover and pursue God's design that we would see that once we understand and we believe and we've turned away from our brokenness, we've turned away from the things that distract us, we turn away from the things that have caused us to be broken from God's design, we would believe the gospel, we would recover, and we would pursue God's design. This, right here, recovering and pursuing, this is making disciples. This is living the life that God has created for you. Right? So my question to you is, where are you on the circle? Are you still living in brokenness? Are you still chasing after the things of this world that you think are going to satisfy? Are you still hoping that one more paycheck, one more new relationship, one more car, one more house, one more hit of the pipe, one more alcoholic beverage, whatever it is, are you hoping that that will fix your brokenness? If you it won't. It won't. I pray that you would repent and believe the gospel. That you would see that you need Jesus so that you could come back to God's design. So that you could live the life that he has called you to live. That he has created you for. This right here is living without the instructions. This right here is the instruction manual to get back here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that in the brokenness, we know that there is restoration because of who Jesus is. Because what he has done. That it is through him that we can find and we can recover and we can pursue your design for our life. But without the gospel, without trusting and believing in Jesus, without turning away from our sins, we will never, ever, ever be good enough. We will never, ever ever be fulfilled we will never be restored life is fruitless life is meaningless outside of the good news of jesus christ out of the the restoration of what you've called us to Lord, as we sing this last song i pray that if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you who doesn't have a relationship with you who hasn't repented and believed lord i pray that they would come to know your goodness I pray that they would come to know that their brokenness, what they're chasing after is never going to satisfy them. It is never going to fulfill them. pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.